We are on part three of our series on spiritual warfare, right? Uh, you guys remember part one and part two? We're talking about uh, ruling ourselves. In part one, we talked about ruling our emotions. How many of you found that challenging? Yeah, me too. Uh, how many of you in part two, where we talked about ruling our words, found that even more challenging? Yeah, guess what? Got bad news for you for part three. <laughs> Ruling our thoughts is the hardest one of all. They seem to progress. And yet, that's where uh, all the others come in line. And so, this morning, we're going to finish up at least this third part of ruling ourselves, our emotions, our words, our thoughts, with talking about ruling our thoughts. And what I want you to get out of this is, uh, well, there's several things. We'll just jump in. But the first thing is, I want you to get that the primary battlefield in spiritual warfare is not in the heavens, even though we battle against principalities and powers in the heavens. The primary battlefield is our mind, and we have to understand this. If we don't understand this, if we're always thinking that the battle is external, um, then we will lose and badly. Um, so the primary battlefield is in our minds, and the place we see this is uh, one of the really key basic scriptures on spiritual warfare in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. And we're, there's four things listed in there that we're going to talk about. Uh, we're basically going to do the whole sermon today uh, just talking about the four things we find in those two verses. So we're really going to look deeply into this scripture. So let's read it. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5 says, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, meaning earthly or natural, uh, but mighty in God. Mighty in God. It's important that we're in God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And uh, just to make it easy in your notes, I underline the four things that I want to talk about today. So let's just begin uh, with a prayer, and then I want to start to talk about this passage. So Lord, uh, we want to invite you to renew our minds this morning with your word as we are looking at it, as we are thinking about you and the way you think and the way you act. Uh, Lord, we ask for your spirit to fill us fresh today. Uh, Lord, to give us capacity to do the things we see in your word, because uh, we can't do them on our own. We invite you, please come and do this for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so it begins, Paul saying, uh, look, we have weapons of warfare that aren't earthly, they're spiritual, they're mighty in God. So, um, I want you to remember, last week in uh, part two, we said our primary weapon, the sword of the Spirit, is the Word of God. Okay, good. Let's try that again. Our, our, well, I'm sure you know this. Our primary weapon is the Word of God. Good, all right. We, we need to know that. Now, that doesn't mean that's our only weapon. There's lots of weapons. Worship is a weapon. We talked about uh, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. We uh, if you look at Isaiah 42 or Psalm 149, you'll see worship as a weapon. Uh, peace is a weapon. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Uh, goodness is a weapon. We overcome evil with 
Good. Anything that overcomes evil is a weapon. And so uh, the, the name of Jesus is a weapon. The blood of Jesus is a weapon. All these things are spiritual weapons. But the primary one, I want, I want you to remember that, just keep it in the back of your head as we go through all this, is the application of the word. It's the sword of the spirit. It's our most effective weapon in spiritual warfare. So uh, with that in mind, let's begin to look at these four things. The first one is uh, pulling down strongholds. Um, now, uh, the literal Greek there is fortresses. And I'm going to say mental fortresses. The Greek doesn't say mental, but I'm going to base that on the other three. I'm very confident knowing that arguments occur in my head, uh, the knowledge of God occurs in my head, that thoughts occur in my head, that probably he's talking about strongholds in my head as well. It seems to fit the theme. So you can disagree with me if you want, but I think he's talking about mental fortresses. And mental fortresses are built on lies. And I'm not going to go into this a whole lot because in in uh, the first teaching, when we talked about ruling over emotions, we talked about how important it was to validate truth, to love truth, to even desire truth in our inward parts, like Jesus said, right? And so uh, the way to deal with mental fortresses or to avoid mental fortresses, mental strongholds, is to love, desire, validate, pursue truth, even uh, truth about ourselves, or especially truth about ourselves, right? But I do want to just take a moment and uh, give you a little bit more on this. Uh, we're pulling down strongholds that are in our mind that are built on lies. Now, let me tell you how this usually works, because we typically, they're built on small lies. It's a foundation of a little lie. And we think, well, that's just a, a little, that's just a little off on that. How big a deal can that be, right? Well, here's what happens. You start out uh, believing a small lie, just a little lie. But, and that's not a fortress yet. That's just a little lie. That's just a little foundation. But over years, the devil adds to that. He builds on that with this experience and that experience and this statement that reinforces that and that statement that reinforces that. And here's another experience. And before you know it, Years later, that little lie is an entire mental fortress. It's a castle in your head. And you go to be in a relationship with a person, and they touch that fortress, and you react. You don't even know why you're reacting the way you're reacting, and they don't know, even know what they did wrong, but the relationship is blown up because there's a fortress there that you weren't aware of, all based on a little lie, you believe, maybe when you were 10. Has anyone experienced this? Yeah. And so you see how big a deal this is, that even little lies can be a foundation that the devil can build a fortress on, a stronghold on, that uh, you end up using to protect you from offense or whatever. And, and you can't function properly uh, with other people because you're engaged with this mental stronghold. And so that has to be torn down. And so that's the beginning of spiritual warfare, where we begin to tear down mental fortresses that are based in lies, or based, that aren't based in the truth that we find in the Word of God. Amen? Easy enough. Go do that. Okay. The second one, this starts to get more interesting, casting down arguments. Now, the word there 
uh, is the, where we get the root word logic, or it's probably best translated reason, casting down reason. Now, I'm going to put human reason in there because I think that's what he's talking about. Uh, now, I'm a big fan of reason. I don't want to throw out reason, and I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I would like for people to act more reasonably than they do in general. I'm for that. I would like to see more reason, you know, just every, every time I read the news, I'm thinking, that's ah, just unreasonable. We need more reason, right? It's just not logical. Let's have some more logic. The problem is we have to understand how human reason and human logic work how really any reason or logic work, and it's this. We really have to pay attention to initial premises. Most times when you're fooled or lied to or manipulated or drug along is someone throws out an initial premise and moves on quickly, and you don't challenge that premise. Now, if the initial premise is false, then uh, no matter the way reasoning works is you have a premise, you build a structure on it, and you end with a conclusion. If the initial premise is false, is there any way the conclusion cannot be false? No. But even if I build everything on it with really logical reasoning, I end up with a false conclusion because I started with a false initial premise. And this is what I want us to get, that we so often buy uh, initial premises that are not correct. Um, you know, for example, uh, human reasoning often starts with man is basically good. Was well, that true? No. What does the Bible say? No one is good. No one is good. No, not one. Just Jesus. He's the only one, right? Now, that sounds like a little thing, and we want to give the benefit of the doubt, and it sounds good. And it's easy to look over something like that. But if we accept that initial premise, we will end up in some really bad places. We have done that as a nation in many ways. Right now, we're in really bad places because we've accepted that initial premise. And so uh, we end up trusting mankind to do things mankind shouldn't be trusted to do. That's right. right? So we see this happening or, uh, or Paul addressing this in Colossians chapter 2. I love this chapter, especially this section. Uh, so let's just look at this for a second. In Colossians chapter 2, uh, we look at verses 2 through 4, then jump to verse 8. Paul says, Attending to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of of wisdom and knowledge. Now, it's really important that we get this. This is an excellent initial premise to start every foundation, every logical trail. All wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus. Is there anyone in the earth who's wiser or has more knowledge than Jesus? No. And yet we act like that might be true. Or not us, I hope. But it's real easy to fall into, you know, well, that guy has a PhD, so it must be that we're all going to die if we don't do this thing. No. My first question is, tell me about your relationship with God. If you can't figure that one out, I'm not really interested in the rest of what you think you know. Right? So all wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. The other thing I want you to notice is this. 
wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is interchangeable here with understanding. Uh, we, we get knowledge to get understanding. Uh, wisdom and knowledge are going to be paired together a bunch today. I want you to notice that, and there's a reason. I'll explain it in a minute. But just notice that this is one of those passages where it pairs together wisdom and knowledge, and it says all the wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus, in the Father and the Son. And he says, now I say this, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. This is a timeless passage. Does anyone feel like someone is trying to deceive them with persuasive words lately? Yeah? All righty. Well, let's find out how to not let that happen. And then jumping to verse 8, it says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy, through empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. You see how timeless this passage is? This is the very thing that we're experiencing today in, on many levels. Pick a subject in our nation, and this is going on, right? And we have to learn to resist that, to cast down these arguments, to cast down this human reasoning. And here's the deal. Remember I said the problem with human reasoning is the initial premise, and that all wisdom and knowledge are hidden in God. So it's this simple. That has to always be our initial premise. Our initial premise always has to be something from the Word of God. It's that simple. All right? It really is. And the Word of God covers most everything. And so uh, that's how we deal with, you know, man is basically good. Nope. Not interested in any argument that follows that, any logic that builds on that, because I know that's not true. Man isn't basically good. All right? And so... Think of how many, uh, well, yeah, I don't want to get into that. Think of how many lies we could deal with just with that. Just with going, nope, let's assume that men are evil and greedy and selfish and move from there. And in need of Jesus to even be good. See how that changes the way we look at things, all right? All right, so all wisdom and knowledge are in him. That is our initial premise. That's what we have to get if we're going to cast down human reasoning. Now, knowledge is understanding. I want you to see the relationship between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is understanding. Wisdom is the action based on that understanding. In other words, it's one thing for me to know how something works. It's wisdom for me to be able to apply that knowledge to actually fix it. Right? So, it's one thing to understand, it's another to have enough wisdom to know what to do. Does that make sense? So we can have knowledge without wisdom. Our knowledge can just be in there, and if we never use it, if it never impacts our actions, uh, then it isn't wisdom, if it doesn't inform us on what to do. So keep that in mind, this can be important as we go on. Now, so what he says in verse 8 is... Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy, traditions of men, basic principles of the world. He's saying anything else is less. He's literally saying someone's trying to cheat you. You're standing there with a book in your hand that contains all the wisdom and knowledge of God. And someone comes along and says, hey, I got some knowledge, man. It'll only cost you a quarter what that costs you. Right? And you've got to go, wait a minute. I think you're trying to cheat me here. 
I think you're selling me inferior knowledge. No, no, man. I got a PhD. This is good stuff. Right? Right? Don't be intimidated by the knowledge that the world has. You have in your hand, in the Bible, uh, and beyond that, in your spirit, the spirit of God who dwells in you, all the wisdom and knowledge in the earth. Right? All right. Just think about that. So, because most of the time, when we get into error, it's because we think we're smarter than God. Now, no one will say, I'm smarter than God. We just act like we're smarter than God. Right? I'll tell you what that looks like. It looks like men with directions. How many of you have done that? All the women are laughing. <laughs> Honey, here's that thing we ordered. It says, some assembly required. I got the directions out for you. What are we saying, men? I don't need no stinking directions. Give me my toolkit. I can figure this thing out. Right? So how does that look with the Bible? Hey, I'm going to get married and have kids. Oh, great. Here's a book that will tell you how to do that. I don't need no stinking book. My parents got married. Look at me. Look how I turned out. How hard can it be? Right? How many of you found you needed the book? Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? And women, you aren't exempt from this either. It's not just guys that do this. Right? You have your own, I don't need that book stuff. Right? I I can figure this out. All right? I can make this work. And so we get to thinking that we don't need the instructions. We can figure it out. We know as much as God does about it. God, you know, what's God know about this anyway? Right? He lived 2,000 years ago. What's he know about going to college now? Right, guys? How's that book going to help me there? It will. All right. I probably poked that bear enough. So, we're to cast down human reasoning. Anything that... Uh, starts with a premise that doesn't, that isn't founded or backed by the Word of God. We just need to go, nope, you lost me at the premise. I'm not listening to your reason. The premise is flawed. Okay. Now, the second, or the third one, I'm sorry, is every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Now, when he says high things, I think he's referring here to demonic wisdom. That is actually a biblical term. There is such a thing as demonic wisdom. It's not really wisdom, uh, but there you have it. We'll read about that in a little bit. But uh, in Ephesians 6, verse 12, it says, We don't battle against flesh and blood, but against principality and powers in high places, right? High things. But we don't battle them there. We battle them here in our minds. That where they're trying to control us. And so he's saying we're casting down demonic wisdom, high things, that is exalting itself or competing against the knowledge of God. Now, this is really important, so we're going to spend some time on this. I don't think the church realizes how important it is that we are pursuing the knowledge of God in terms of spiritual warfare. And when I say the knowledge of God, I don't mean doctrine or facts. 
you know, that you can, you know, name Jesus' genealogy or you know where he was born and, you know, what year he was in, you know, Judea and what year he was. That's all good stuff. I'm talking about his thoughts and his ways. He wants us to know his thoughts and his ways. When we see the knowledge of God, we're talking about the way God thinks, the way God acts. And all those facts can inform us, can be clues, but we need that kind of knowledge of God to function. We need that for spiritual warfare because there is demonic wisdom exalting itself against that knowledge. And we need to cast down the demonic wisdom in preference to that knowledge. Now, let me just show you this in Scripture. We'll go to Brother Hosea. Hosea, you guys all know this verse. You probably just didn't know it was in Hosea. Hosea says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Well, what do we do, Brother Hosea? Do I need to get back to college? Do I need to get a master's in psychology? Would that help me? And he says, no. Goes on to chapter 6. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. What kind of knowledge is he talking about? My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge of the Lord, right? So why is the knowledge of the Lord such a big deal? Well, Hosea says, didn't you read in Solomon what Solomon said in Proverbs 9.10, how the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding? Let me make this really simple. You will not understand this world, this life, yourself without the knowledge of Jesus. It is understanding. You need to know how Jesus thinks and, and Jesus' ways to understand pretty much life. Otherwise, it won't make sense to you and you'll do dumb things. Okay? So, of course, the whole passage, Proverbs 9, 10, has this pairing of wisdom and knowledge again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And so since we keep seeing this pairing, I want you to really understand this because it's going to come into play in a little bit. Um, the knowledge of the Lord is where we get understanding. The wisdom of the Lord is when we apply that understanding to our life and actually make wise choices. So the knowledge of the Lord lets us know things, but the wisdom of the Lord lets us know what to do, how to actually live life. Does that make sense? And so uh, I put in your notes here that wisdom is correct action based on applied understanding. They're paired together. So you can't get to the wisdom of God without the knowledge of the Lord. It's built on the knowledge of the Lord. It's the application of the knowledge of the Lord. Uh, I become wise when I apply the knowledge of Jesus to my own life. And I begin to try and act like him, right? And so that's what's going on. And that is, in fact, our goal. It's very clear in Scripture. And so I want you to see this. This is our individual goal. This is the church's goal. I just want to beat this knowledge of the Lord thing drum really hard so that we get this this morning. So, Philippians 3.8, Paul says it this way, Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ, Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. If you want to get real technical there, that word rubbish means animal poopy. So, which would be great if they translate that way. Wouldn't that be great in the, in the Passion? 
I count them as animal poopy, that I may gain Christ. I think that reads well. Um, anyway, what's Paul saying here? Paul's saying that all of, and remember, uh, the context of this is Paul's talking about all the degrees he had, and, you know, studying under Gam Gamaliel, him, you know, uh, and all that stuff. And he says, that's all rubbish now. All that matters is the knowledge of Christ. That's what I'm after. I have found the pearl of great price, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen? Ephesians 4, I love this. In context, this is the part where uh, we're told about this, really the only place we're told about how the church is kind of structured to function. It says, I've given you the fivefold ministry to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build them up until, and then it ends with the fullest expression of Christ possible, right? Well, let's look at the until part. Flip Ephesians 4.13, till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I believe this passage is saying the church won't live up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ without a deep knowledge of Jesus Christ. His thoughts and his ways. Amen. Getting this? Yes, so again, this is all working towards uh, ruling over our thoughts. I love this prayer, Ephesians 1. Uh, Paul's praying this, and again, we're going to see this pairing. And, and I, I just, uh, well, I don't know. I get excited about it. We'll see if you get excited. If not, I'll move on. All right. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That's supernatural knowledge. That's understanding, right? Wisdom and understanding. Wisdom and revelation that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and, relation, and revelation in the knowledge of him. Where does this spirit reside? As we gain the knowledge of Jesus Christ. As we gain knowledge of his thoughts and his ways. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Oh, if I pursue the knowledge of Jesus, I'll understand more? Yes. And you'll gain wisdom. The eyes of understanding being enlightened. That you may know. Oh, this sounds good. I'm going to know some stuff. What can I know? What can you know? Are you ready? You can know the hope of his calling. You can know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. You can know, this is a fun one, what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards you who believe. You can know that, church. You can know those three things. I get excited about knowing those three things. They are contained in the pursuit of the knowledge of God. That's how we know. We don't just know those things because we read about them in a book. Well, I read here that I can, I can know the exceeding greatness of the power of God towards me, so I know the exceeding greatness of the power of God towards me because I read it. It's right there. Nope. You know it as you pursue the knowledge of Jesus, as you go deeper into his thoughts and his ways. That's how you begin to learn the exceeding greatness of the power of God towards you. Get it? And so this is a big deal that we pursue the knowledge of the Lord as, uh, yeah, as we read in Hosea 6. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. 
Finally, we read this one last week, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The divine power of Jesus has given us everything we need already to live a godly life. Who wants that? How do we get that? Well, let's keep reading. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of of him. Wow. Who called us by glory and virtue? You get it? So we really have to get that the pursuit of the knowledge of Jesus is critical just for being a Christian, uh, but especially in spiritual warfare. If we're going to do 2 Corinthians 10 verses 4 and 5, we're going to cast these things down. We need the knowledge of Christ. What we're saying is we're pursuing the knowledge of Jesus, and we're casting down every other competing knowledge, whether it is human reasoning, whether it is demonic wisdom. We're going, I'm casting that down in preference to the knowledge of Christ. You can't just cast those two things down and have no other knowledge, right? It's in preference to this. I'm exalting this, and in doing that, I'm casting these down. And so we have to uh, increase our value for the knowledge of the way Jesus thinks and the way Jesus acts and use that to cast down human reasoning and demonic wisdom. You with me? Okay, so we've made it through the first three, uh, casting down strongholds, casting down arguments, human reasoning, casting down high things that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, demonic reasoning, preferring the knowledge of God. Now comes the tough one, bringing every thought in the captivity to the obedience of Christ. Every thought, all those things running through your head, obeying Jesus. Wow. Sounds hard, doesn't it? Well, it is. Now, what's going on here is exactly what we read in uh, Proverbs 9.10, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We're getting the knowledge of Jesus. We're getting understanding. The fear of the Lord is basically going, I'm afraid to do it my way. I only want to do it His way. And so the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because the fear of the Lord is saying, I'm going to take the knowledge of God that I've gained and I'm going to actually apply that to my life. I'm afraid to do anything else. I'm afraid to do this without the directions right? And that's the fear of the Lord. And so that then becomes wisdom. Applying that knowledge of the Lord becomes wisdom. And that leads to wise actions. Keep that in mind because we're going to see that coming up. God's after something here. So we're taking thoughts captive because we want to conform our thoughts to the knowledge of Christ. Remember we said it's the way Jesus thinks and his ways. So we're saying, basically, I'm taking thoughts captive. I'm taking my thoughts captive to the way Jesus thinks. That is challenging, right? And I'm going to keep casting down arguments and vain imaginations and high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God because I'm trying to make my thoughts like his thoughts. And we can do that. Now, we see the result of this in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed 
What are we being transformed into? Anyone? Image of Christ. Good. I thought you'd know that one. All right. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed into the image of Christ. Well, how do we do that? I just do what the book says, right? It says, no. You do it by renewing your mind. By renewing your mind. By taking thoughts captive. By doing this verse. But here's the bonus. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Saying, if you'll do this, if you'll war for your thoughts to cause them to align with Jesus' thoughts, you will actually start to walk in wisdom. It will show in your actions. You will be a living proof in the earth that God's ways work, that he is wise. You will be a living proof of the wisdom of God if you will take your thoughts captive and begin to think like he thinks. Who wants that? Pretty cool, huh? So that's what's going on here. So what we have to do is we have to take it up a notch. What we tend to do is kind of think in terms of just the negative. I don't want to do the bad thing. And so we, we try to not just have bad thoughts, right? And that's good. We should try to not have bad thoughts. But Jesus is saying, no, don't just not have bad thoughts. Have my thoughts. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16 says, uh, who has instructed the Lord, but... What? You have the mind of Christ. So something's changed here. In the New Testament, you have the Spirit of God in you. You can have the mind of Christ. Think about that. You can know Christ's thoughts. You can have Christ's thoughts. He will talk to you about what he's thinking. Now, well, so we can have the mind of Christ. So it's not just bad thoughts. It's having his thoughts. Now, in case you don't understand that, let me tell you what that looks like. Let's say you're in conflict with someone. Not having bad thoughts is going, I don't want to think all the names I'm thinking about this person. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to express anger towards this person. And that's a win, right? If I can just not express anger. And God goes, no. Why don't you ask me my thoughts towards this person? And now instead of just not being angry at him, uh, you're starting to get God's thoughts towards him. You understand how God's having compassion for him and what maybe he's going through. And now you're ending up not just trying not to curse this guy, you're praying for this guy. Your heart is starting to have affection towards this guy. Does that make sense? That's a lot harder, isn't it? Because this guy's annoyed me. And I want to be mad at him. But God's not mad at him. God has thoughts towards him. I'll tell you another one. The guys will, this will work more for the guys than the girls. Uh, you know, you're at the, at the gym or at work or somewhere where there's a hot girl who maybe could wear more clothes. Right? And you're trying not to have wrong thoughts. Right? And so that's it. That's my goal. I'm just trying not to have wrong thoughts. And you end up just looking at your shoes or looking at the wall or, you know, stuff like that. And God goes, well, let's go higher than that. Let's not just not have wrong thoughts. Why don't you ask me what I think about her? And here's what happens. All of a sudden, instead of being an object of potentially an object of lust, because it's easier to lust after something that's an object than a person, then uh, she becomes a person that God cares about, and he has thoughts towards her. And now you know those thoughts. And now you care about her. And maybe you're even praying for her and not even so much noticing how she needs a wardrobe change. Right? <laughs> Now, 
this doesn't just happen because you've gone to church enough Sundays this year or because you've been a, you hit the 10-year mark and bam, it starts happening. You just start thinking God's thoughts. Just hang in there, All right? Have you been Christian more than 10 years and you aren't there yet? Yeah. This takes effort. This is what he's talking about when he says take thoughts captive. Not just, uh, don't think bad thought, don't think bad thought, don't think bad thought, don't think bad thought. Boy, that gets old. Jesus, what are your thoughts? Jesus, what are your thoughts? Jesus, what are your thoughts? It doesn't say take thoughts captive to yourself. It says take thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. So I'm trying to go, God, what are your thoughts? Help me to think your thoughts in this situation. And it's challenging, but his thoughts are interesting and better almost all the time, right? So here's what I want you to see. Uh, I was looking at that relationship between wisdom and knowledge, and I wanted you to see that the wisdom of God is predicated on the knowledge of God because we're applying the knowledge of God to our lives to express the wisdom of God. That means there is no wisdom without the knowledge of God. Or in other words, we can't act like him until we think like him. So you can put on all the what would Jesus do bracelets you want, <laughs> but you can't do what Jesus would do if you don't know what Jesus is thinking. You understand? That's what he's talking about when he says taking thoughts captive to obedience to Christ, getting the knowledge of God, learning his thoughts and his ways. And what I love is if we'll do it, as, as uh, Romans 12 said, we will prove that he is wise, right? There's a passage in Matthew 11 that's really fun, and it basically says that the fruit of our lives is the proof of wisdom. And I'm amazed at how timeless this passage is. Let's see if this sounds like, uh, in different words, it could be ripped from today's headlines. He says, what shall I like in this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned for you and you did not lament. And let me put that in contemporary language. What is this generation like? It's like a bunch of people saying, we keep changing the tune and you aren't changing with us. You aren't keeping up. We keep changing the tune and you aren't dancing our dance. What's the matter with you? You're supposed to change whenever we change and do our dance. Is, that, is this timeless or what? It's going on, isn't it? Let's read the next part. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon... The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Whatever you do, we'll find a problem with it. If you do this, we'll tell you why you're wrong. If you do the opposite, we'll tell you why that's wrong. Even if we do the same things, when we do them, they're right. When you do them, they're wrong. Does anyone see this going on around us? It's happening, isn't it? It's an incredibly timeless verse. But let's look at the conclusion of the matter. Jesus goes, eh, whatever. Wisdom is justified by our children. You know what he's saying? He's saying, we'll see who's wise by the fruit, by the children, by what's produced. He's basically going, you know what? I'm pretty confident when this whole thing's wrapped up, I won't be the one looking stupid. 
You go ahead. And to some degree, that needs to be our attitude. You go ahead. I'm pretty confident at the end of all this, I'm not going to be the one looking stupid. If I'm conforming my thoughts to the mind of Christ. If I'm conforming my premises to the Word of God. Right? So he's going, hey, the fruit will bear it out. Don't worry about it. Don't be in a hurry. Fruit will tell. (sighs) So, last week we looked at uh, James chapter 3. Remember that? The first half of that chapter, the first 12 verses are all about words and how uh, our words, you know, start forest fires and, you know, they're like a rudder and steer the ship and we were talking about how important our words are. We're going to look at the second half of that. So as a bonus, in these last two teachings, we'll have covered the entire chapter three of James. So there you go. Um, and that's free. I won't even charge extra. Now, uh, what he does is he shifts right from words to thoughts or wisdom, that same pairing. And uh, so I wanted to read that in mind with what we were just talking about here. Okay? And this is where we get that term demonic wisdom that I referred to earlier. In James 3, verses 13 through 17, uh, it's just really displaying what I just talked about. It says, who is wise and understanding among you? And again, this is a good question. If James were here, he might ask it. So go ahead, raise your hands. Who's wise and understanding among you? Anyone? (laughs) Wow, we're all reluctant. Just not sure. All right. I won't make you raise your hands. You know why? We don't need you to. It says, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. You know what James is saying? He goes, who's wise and understanding among you? Don't bother to raise your hands. I'll be able to tell by your conduct. If your wisdom, if your, if your conduct is in the meekness of wisdom, wisdom is meek. And then he goes on to describe the difference between demonic wisdom and higher wisdom, wisdom from above, wisdom from God. So let's look at this. And he's going, you know, this, the fruit, your conduct will tell me whether you've uh, gained the knowledge of Christ and applied that to your life and it's turned into wisdom. And it's mostly attitudes and actions. So let's look at this. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where there is envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Any questions? James is a heavy guy, isn't he? But the wisdom that is from above, this is what we want to display, right? The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle. Willing to yield. You might want to underline that one. (laughs) Willing to yield. Full of mercy and good fruits. Without partiality and without hypocrisy. That's wisdom from above. You don't get that kind of wisdom unless you're learning Christ's thoughts and ways. And taking thoughts captive to begin to think like him. That's when this kind of wisdom comes out. Isn't that awesome? And so this is what we're doing in spiritual warfare. Proving his wisdom uh, takes really radically higher thinking and ways. You guys are all probably familiar with Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, where Jesus, or God through Isaiah says, 
My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. How much higher are the heavens than the earth? Lots, right? So he's not going, you know, yeah, I, I, I have a little better thoughts and ways than you. He's going, you, you aren't even close. You have no clue how much higher my ways and my thoughts are. But with the coming of Jesus and the coming of his Holy Spirit in us, we can have the mind of Christ. We can begin to grasp these higher thoughts and ways. And they're amazing. So let me give you a couple of examples of what that might look like. Let's, let's do mercy first. Let's say you're sitting at a table with Jesus. You and Jesus are having a coffee. And uh, you go, Jesus... You know, we've been doing a lot of praying. We've been doing a lot of ministry. I've been talking to people about you. Why don't we just do something fun today? Jesus goes, I'd love that. Let's just do something fun. You go, okay, Jesus, what do you want to do? He goes, hey, you know that couple with the mean kids that were real mean to your wife and your kids, and, and they just kind of keep bugging them, and, and you go home and you're stressed out, because your kids and your wife are stressed out because of this couple and all the stuff they're doing? He says, yeah, I know about them. He goes, I happen to know that they are really going through it right now. They're really in a bad place. And you go, okay, I'm listening. What's up? He goes, let's go show them mercy. Pardon me? I thought we were going to do something fun. <laughs> yeah. Haven't you read in Micah? I delight in showing mercy. It is so much fun to show people mercy. I look for opportunities to show people mercy. And it is at this point that you realize, I don't think like him. I really don't think like him. You get it? Let's try another one encouragement. Hey, have, now we're on the back deck because that's where I like to sit sometimes, have my prayer time. I'm on the back deck having coffee because prayer and coffee go together. And uh, I'm going, hey, Jesus, while we're talking, uh, there's this guy I work with. You remember, actually, it's a couple guys, and maybe you remember them. Uh, they used to be Christians, but now they just, they, they, they party and they cuss and they blaspheme you. I tried to speak the word of God to them and now they're mad at me and they give me a hard time and I just try to mind my own business now but they're trying to get me fired. They're lying about me. They're saying all kinds of stuff and I just wanted to kind of talk to you about them today and Jesus goes, yeah, 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 I've been thinking about them. And you go, you have? Yeah, I've been thinking about them. He goes, I'll tell you what, maybe you could partner with me. Could you go and encourage them? And tell them I'm thinking about them and I'm really thinking about how I miss them and how I want to prosper them and give them a future and a hope. And you go, what? <laughs> and Jesus laughs and he goes, you know who you remind me of? You remind me of Jeremiah. Back in the Bible. I did this to Jeremiah. He was, he was prophesying to Israel and I told him, they were getting ready to go into captivity. And I told them, 
to say to Israel. It's in Jeremiah 29. You can read about it. I told him to say, I know the thoughts I'm thinking towards you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. I said, Jeremiah, tell him that. You know what Jeremiah said? Jeremiah said, God, I just told him literally two verses earlier that they're going into captivity. They haven't even gone yet. They're going into a 70-year timeout. It hasn't even started. And you want me to encourage them? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking about them. I'm thinking about uh, already about bringing them back and prospering. 70 years, that's nothing. He goes, this is the same guys that when I spoke the word of the Lord to them, they wanted to kill me. And then they decided to downgrade it to just throw me in a, a dirty, miry pit and feeding me bread. These are the guys you want me to encourage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. And it's at this point you realize, I don't think like him. When's the last time you were in the midst of punishing your kid and you just inflicted the sentence and the, and the first thought in your head is, oh, I'm so excited about uh, restoring them and bringing them back. You're just trying to deal with your own in, internal anger at that point and not be a jerk about it. And God's already moved on to, I can't wait till they've learned this lesson and I've restored them and I'm building them up. And I just go, we don't think like him. This takes effort. I use these examples and you could probably come up with dozens of others, right? Just from stories and scriptures. I use these examples to get us to realize how much higher his thoughts are than ours. What a big deal it is when he says, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. But here's the cool thing, and I put this last in your notes, that we war in the spirit to rule over ourselves, but not just so that we can go to heaven or so that God's happy with us, and those are good things. We war in the spirit to rule over ourselves so that we are living proof of his wisdom. God says, if you'll war in the spirit, if you'll rule over yourselves, you will prove my good and acceptable perfect will. I can look at all the people on the earth who need to see me, and they go, prove to me that God's real. And I can go, well, there's Becky. See how she's proving my will in her life? Look at her. There's Eileen. See how she's proving that I'm good and that I'm loved? Look at her. Who wants to be proof of the wisdom of God? Yeah. I'm not seeing very many hands. It's a lot of work, isn't it? But that's what we're called to. That's why we do spiritual warfare. That's why we rule over ourselves. That's why we take thoughts captive. Because all of these things are an opportunity to prove how awesome God is, how wise his ways are. If only we can learn to think like him and take other thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. That's spiritual warfare. Amen? All right, Rachel, as we bring the band up, you, I let Rachel uh, end last time. She did a pretty good job, so I figured I'd do it again. <laughs> Got anything you want to add? All right, how's that?
I just say, and I feel like, oh, this is something on the Lord's heart. Because he doesn't want us to be trapped in our thoughts and in our ways. You know that Isaiah 55 verse, when Jesus says, when, the, when God says, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts, I'm higher than the heavens. He actually comes right after saying, let the wicked forsake their way and let the unrighteous forsake their understanding. Because we don't understand his ways toward us. So I just wanted to encourage you guys in the battle. Just felt that the Lord's heart about engage the battle. And there's the thoughts that we have every day. You know, our everyday thoughts that we have to deal with. The lies that we believe. But there's also the fiery darts, which I talked about last week. The fiery darts of the enemy. But the word is the answer to both of them. The word is the thing that will cause you to change internally. You just, I can't stress that enough. Prayer and the word, worship. Um, Tony actually gave you how I actually write a novel. He told you the dark moment story. Every character I write has a dark moment story. And that's the lie they believed as a kid. Something happened to them as a kid. And, and as the creator of this character, my desire is for this character to come to truth at the end of the book. It's called the epiphany. So the whole journey about writing this novel and everything that happens, the external plot, everything that happens on the outside and everything that happens on the inside is about this character coming to truth. So I have a wisdom character, a character who presents reason, the voice of truth, the voice of reason. Now I'm flawed. I'm an imperfect human being. If I want my character to come to truth, how much more does the author of your life want you to come to truth? He's writing your story. And everything in your life is about coming up, leaning on your beloved, Song of Solomon 8, 6. He wants you to come to truth. And yeah, it is hard, you guys, to take our thoughts captive. It is hard. I think I said at one point to Tony last year, can I just have a new brain? Can I just have a new brain? Because I was dealing with a little bit more than just the average thoughts that hit you through the day, your average insecurities. I was in warfare. And if you're struggling and you're, you're battling over and over those same thoughts, consider that you might be in warfare and you might be having some fiery darts. Then you're going to go to Ephesians and you're going to put on your full armor and you're going to pick up your shield of faith, which what? Extinguishes the fiery darts of the evil one. We're going to battle. We're going to war. So my last thought for you guys is make it your passion to know him. There is nothing in this world that is greater pursuit than knowing God. You young people, man, I was saying to God a couple months ago, I wish I could go back 30 years and start over with what I know now. (laughs) But of course it took me 30, 40 years to get here. But you're sitting here, you just heard an amazing teaching about spiritual warfare. You heard, if you remember nothing of today, you guys, remember, pursue God passionately. Go for the knowledge of God because he wants to reveal yourself to you. Now you're going to get out in the world and they're going to say, you can't know God. Are you holier than thou? Yeah, I am. Thank you. I'm going to pursue him. 
Someone said that to me one time. You think you're holy? And I said, yeah, I am. Because <laughs> the Bible tells me I'm holy. It's not being arrogant. Pursue him. Pursue him. Pursue him. And ask him how he feels about you, how he feels about others. Because that is the thing that will change your life. That is the thing that will keep you on track. And why do we know the world doesn't have any wisdom? They can't even agree. If you go and pursue, I'm going to eat better. Which one of the thousand programs who swears that they're right are you going to follow? Right? I need to take this supplement. Which one of the thousand supplements are you going to take that swear they can change your life? Right? Which philosophy are you going to follow that swears they can help you achieve all your dreams and goals? They can't even agree. But we can agree with heaven about our lives and about taking those thoughts captive. It is possible. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Amen.